Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. My name is Michael Falk, and I'll be hosting today's episode, and I'm joined by Dr. Sam Steiner, an orthopedic surgeon at Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin. Today, I asked Dr. Steiner some of the most common questions that we get from patients surrounding common sports injuries, so things like protocols and precautions, when you can drive, thoughts around PRP injections, etc. So I think this is a really good resource for any athletes that are going through a current injury and have some questions surrounding uh, things that they might want to ask their doctor. Hopefully this gives you some ideas. Again, everything in here is not specific medical advice because it is very patient dependent, but hopefully this gives you a nice overview that you can listen to and learn and ask your doctor some questions and have specific advice for your injuries. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. My name is Michael Falk, and I'll be hosting the episode today, and I'm joined by Dr. Sam Steiner of Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin. So, Doc, thank you for uh, taking some time to come on the podcast and share some uh, advice to some of our post-operative patients today. Michael, thank you for having me. So I always like to just start every podcast with a guest on kind of your story, how you ended up being a sports med doc that uh, really specializes in treating with, treating athletes. Sure. I, I don't know if my story of becoming an orthopedic surgeon is unique. There's so many of us sports orthopedic surgeons that are former jocks, but um, I am local. I grew up and I went to McClonagall. That's where I graduated from, was McClonagall High School. Um, I played multiple sports, but I ended up going on to play uh, college football at UW-Madison and then uh, transferred over to Purdue. I ultimately uh, hung up my helmet when I realized there were guys much better than me. Um, but uh, after that, then, you know, kind of focused on my studies and uh, went into med school. Um, and then from there, you know, uh, some people don't know, but our training then involves after four years of medical school, you have five years of residency. So I did my med school in Milwaukee at MCW, my residency at UW-Madison, um, and then I did a one-year fellowship. That's where we can specialize, and I did mine in sports orthopedic surgery at the University of Virginia. Um, and then ultimately came back here, dra- dragged my wife kicking and screaming back to the Midwest, <laughs> and, uh, and then settled at uh, OAW. That's great. I'm always, uh, always curious kind of with with doctors that were high-level athletes, if there's anything from your own injury experience or just like almost being on the other side of the uh, the table, if you will, that you've really taken from uh, lessons as an athlete into your role as a sports surgeon now. Yeah, I see that in a lot of uh, other people as well. And I see that in some of my patients where we kind of pique their interest into medicine once they've undergone, you know, big surgery and rehab. But for myself, I never really had major injuries other than just hamstring pulls. But um, I think it, it was the challenge of medicine that ultimately led me to choose to try and be a physician. Um, and then from there, you know, ended up being where I am now. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's great. I mean, I think it's, it's just really good perspective. Like when you've had the, uh, you've had the experience as an athlete and you're actually talking to people, like we just see it sometimes if you don't understand like the mindset of the athlete or the schedule, like that there's practices and games and the time frames matter. It can really affect your decision-making and things like that too. So, well, McQuanago has a, or uh, Mosquito has a pretty good, did you go to Mosquito or McQuanago? McQuanago. McQuanago. Don't get them confused. Yes. Big game last Friday. 
uh, Brett was actually uh, our therapist was out watching so we have a couple kids playing uh, playing for this team so it's fun to get out and watch them nice. actually play nice yeah Maquanago was uh, triumphant but um, you know Muskego had their several years of state titles so that, that's awesome and in the end it's all it's all you know Lake Country it's all Classic 8 it's, it's even though there's those rivalries between Arrowhead and Maquanago and Muskego um, it's good for this area yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, since we have you here, kind of our thought and our staff's thought of trying to have you on today was, you know, we get so many patients that are either about to have surgery or just had surgery. We get a lot of questions that are asked to us in our office and we do our best to answer them, but our answer always ends up with, well, but you should go talk to your surgeon first. And so we just thought that we'd record this podcast, we kind of surveyed um, all of our staff members with what are some of the most common questions that we get that we send patients back to the doctor and obviously everything is going to come with the caveat of individualization and, and things like that but maybe we can help people out with some of these so the first one that i want to start with is the idea of mris so um, particularly if players now watch uh, espn or twitter or whatever their favorite professional player gets a hangnail in a game last night um, they're probably getting an mri um, in the morning and um I'd be curious just to get your take on when MRIs are helpful for you when you're evaluating athletes and when, you know, it's maybe overkill and not really going to uh, impact them that much. So like how you make that MRI decision. Sure. You know, most sports injuries involve the knee or the shoulder. That's what I specialize in. I just do sports knees and shoulders. But when, when you're dealing with an injury, the first question you have to ask yourself is, is an MRI going to change how we treat your injury? So if we can develop a differential diagnosis, we're trying to figure out what's going on. Is an MRI going to change anything that we're going to do? And if the answer is no, then why get it? Sometimes I understand it's for a peace of mind and people just want to know what's going on. But MRIs are not free. They're not cheap. Um, and uh, there is a wait time to get them. So if we kind of know what our diagnosis is, we're going to treat it conservatively. Oftentimes we'll try not to get an MRI. Otherwise, um, for me, an indication, especially in the knee, to get an MRI is, did you have an acute injury? Are you a young athlete with uh, a swollen knee or what we call a knee effusion, which means there's something wrong inside the joint? And, um, and if those questions are, are met, then typically we will get an MRI. Um, other times, if we know we're dealing with like a ligament injury in the knee, um, we'll get an MRI. So, you know, we all talk about ACL tears and ACL injuries. The vast majority of time, we can diagnose those just on clinical exam. But, uh, you know, the MCL is most commonly injured in the knee. And um, that's one we, we don't talk about as much because it rarely needs surgery. Occasionally it will, but rarely does it. But oftentimes I will get an MRI. And the main reason for that in an athlete, especially if they're mid-sport, is to diagnose the severity. And uh, as the severity increases, the duration you're out of play increases. And a lot of times athletes want to know, you know, when do you think I'm going to get back? Their coaches want to know, when do you think I'm going to get back? And an MRI can answer that. So um, I don't know if that makes it any clearer or any more difficult on uh, when to get an MRI. But if, if, uh, if we know we're going to do surgery or think we're going to, if we think we know we're going to need to do surgery um, or if we think there's, there's a problem in the joint that uh, potentially might need surgery, that's when it's a good indication to get an MRI. Yeah, no, that's, that's very much kind of in line with what we talk about when people ask us. And it's like, from our standpoint, it's always like, well, is it bugging you enough that you would actually, if it showed something, would you would you surgically fix it? And if it's not it's not that big, if it's not bothering you that much that 
you just want to know but you wouldn't do anything about it and like you're probably wasting some of your your time and money right that, that's exactly what we say is if, if this mri shows something that we would we would say surgery would correct it would you want surgery and if your answer is no you probably shouldn't have an mri yeah no i think um, i think that makes a lot of sense like they can be really good really important but sometimes unnecessary or sometimes even add like some confusion especially in baseball players so it's uh just because your favorite pro player gets seven MRIs a season <laughs> doesn't right. uh, doesn't necessarily it's a different different um level of athlete and different stakes at that level too right J- James Andrews Jim Andrews is probably one of the biggest names in sports um and he has a great saying which is uh, if you want to operate on a young athlete's shoulder just get an MRI <laughs> Because yeah. uh, the only abnormal MRI is a, is a normal MRI. Right. No, absolutely. I, uh, I think that that's something that a lot of people don't uh, don't know. So I know you mentioned you kind of one of your big specialties within athletes is knees and shoulders. Um, what are some of the most common surgeries that you actually do perform in the knee and the shoulder for like a youth athlete or a competitive athlete? Sure. So for the shoulder, I think the most common procedure that I do would be uh, shoulder stability cases. So if somebody has a history of recurrent dislocations, you know, we'll do things like labral repair. Um, we'll do things like capsulography, which is tightening the capsule or the ligaments around the shoulder to make it more stable. Um, you know, from there, you can do more complex stabilization surgeries, but those are probably the most common. And in the knee, for me, you know, the most common for athletes isn't meniscus tears. Young athletes, meniscus tears alone are not the most common injury I see. For me, it's it's ACLs and uh, multi-ligamentous knee reconstructions along with patellar stabilizing surgeries. So I do things where I reconstruct ligaments and, and cut bones to realign them in order to uh, prevent recurrent uh, patellar or kneecap dislocation. So for me, those are probably the most common procedures that I do. Yeah, no, that uh, I think that definitely makes sense. And um, everyone hears about the meniscus, but probably not as common as people think in younger kids when it's, um, you know, it, it might happen as a result of also having an ACL or something Correct, like that. Yeah. Um, but it tends to be like older athletes that'll get some of the more isolated meniscus tears. Right. Um, so along those lines, I want to ask some of the more common questions with, uh, luckily I think we took a pretty good guess at the most common uh, surgeries that you do. Just some of our questions on, um, that patients will ask us if we're seeing them preoperatively or, or if, you know, we'll send them to get something checked out if they come into our office first. Um, so with anybody that's going through an ACL injury, one of the things that we get asked the most about is what graft choice they should use for that ACL reconstruction. So I'd be curious to get your take on how you kind of guide and advise patients what, what you like to do. Sure. So, you know, some of the recommendations that I have are based on clinical evidence. So these are coming out of studies where, you know, you have a large patient population and, um, and you look at it over time and see outcomes. And some of the recommendations I have are what we call anecdotal or just my personal experience. But when it comes to choosing graft options, this is based on clinical science. And so I can tell you the same thing that I'll tell my patients. I, I had to do three of these talks this morning alone. <laughs> which is, hey, there are four different graft options for your ACL. First of all, um, your ACL, if it's ruptured or it's you know completely torn, it's not going to heal on its own. We're not going to get into the nuances of why the ACL doesn't heal, but there are reasons why it doesn't want to heal, unlike your MCL. But, um, and then you know that rupture does not do well with trying to repair it. Um, again, there are 
newer studies coming out which say there may be a way of trying to repair it, but we've been around um, you know, that, uh, that discussion before. And so for me, uh, you, know, you do what you do for these high-level athletes. You do what you hear about is done on professional athletes, which is reconstruct the ACL or give them a new one. So you need to use a tendon to do that. There are four different graft options, and I won't use the first one on you, which is an allograft. That's cadaver tissue. So that's someone else's tendon, which has been cleaned. Um, there's no living cells in there, but you could use that. I do that for other ligaments of the knee, but I won't do it as the only option for the ACL. And the reason why is there's a three times higher risk of re-tearing your ACL if you use purely allograft compared to your own tissue, which we call autograft. And those were studies done on, on teenagers and people in their 20s. Um, you know, I'm 40. I like to think I'm still young. Um, and if it's not good for somebody who's in their 20s, why would I want it in my knee? So, and I have plenty of anecdotal evidence of why I don't use allograft for ACLs. But, um, and then I use all three of the available options for autograft. So the only three options there are are quad tendon, uh, patellar tendon, and hamstring tendons. And they all have their own pluses and minuses. So hamstring tendons, uh, you know, those, there aren't any bone attached to it. It's just purely the hamstring tendons. They actually attach on the front of your shin, which, which people don't know about. Um, they always wonder, why is there that, that incision over the front of my shin? Well, I had to take your hamstring tendons. But hamstring tendons uh, are a little bit of a quick recovery in the first two to four weeks is what I typically see. They t- tend to hurt just a little bit less. Um, but then again, to do an ACL, you have to ream or drill a tunnel, uh, two of them actually, that are about a centimeter in size. That tends to hurt quite a bit. But uh, hamstrings tend to hurt a little bit less. Uh, but there's some research that says that they have a slightly higher failure rate in younger athletes. Um, and without bone attached to it, uh, they're not as sturdy initially as the other options. So with your patellar tendon, you can take bone from the kneecap and bone from the shin bone along with the central part of the tendon. So we call it bone patellar tendon bone autograft. That tends to heal in a little bit quicker because it's bone on either side. And that one I probably use the most common on my contact athletes. Uh, so those are young, you know, football, soccer players, rugby players. Um, the disadvantage of that graft uh, are two things. Number one, um, you tend to have pain in the front of your knee if you kneel for your sport. So I have plenty of wrestlers or catchers, some MMA fighters who I operate on, and they kneel all day long. So it's probably not a great graft option for them. There are also some athletes have a condition that you're probably familiar with too called jumper's knee. And that's just where you get irritation and sometimes thinning of the patellar tendon right as it attaches onto your patella. I, I know some surgeons don't evaluate that tendon on an MRI, but I do look closely at it because it's in some athletes, it's pretty uh, remarkable how beaten up or thin that graft can be. And you're going to be reliant on that to hold as the new ACL. So if I see that, I won't use it or I will advise against it. Um, and lastly, there's the quad tendon. So you can use purely just the tendon, which I will do on young athletes who are still growing, meaning they have open growth plates. Or uh, most commonly, I'll use part of the, the kneecap along with it. So it's got bone on one side and just tendon on the other. That tends to be the, the biggest of, of the graft options. And, um, and so I'll tend to use that um, if somebody is a contact athlete with, uh, with a bad patellar tendon, or I'll use it on larger athletes. You get that um, you know, big uh, high school or college lineman who's you know, 6'4", 6'6", weighs a lot. 
they're a bigger person, they need a bigger graft. So I tend to use that um, in that patient population. So ultimately what I tell all of my patients is these are your options. These are the pluses and minuses of each. Which one do you want to use? Yeah. So that's what I tend to do. Yeah. No, I think that's really good. I mean, I'm not, I guess I understand it from the patient's perspective, but people seem to get really, really hung up on, on that choice sometimes. And it's probably one of the things that will like, they just keep asking and asking and asking about. And oftentimes we're like, you know, the research on all three of those outside of the, the, um, allografts are relatively similar. And so find a surgeon that you really like and trust and, find out what they think is the best fit for you and what they're really comfortable doing. And then, you know, go that route versus like forcing a surgeon to do something that they don't think is in your best interest or something like that. So, um, one of the questions that we'll get around ACLs, uh, as well. And then if there is an isolated meniscus tear is why some meniscus injuries are, you know, a very quick recovery or maybe right after their ACL, they don't have any extra restrictions. And then sometimes they have a meniscus injury that, that takes a lot longer. They're out longer. They might have more restrictions on their range of motion or, or how quickly they can walk after surgery. Why, what, what is the difference? Why can the same structure be injured and the, the protocols could be very different? Right. So, you know, that meniscus, it's a fibrocartilaginous structure. That's a shock absorber in your knee. And uh, it's fairly common to have it torn at the same time of an ACL tear. But um, not every meniscus tear is the same. So that's the first thing I have to tell patients. And um, some tears will um, be a certain pattern and in a certain location of the meniscus where the only thing that you can do forward is just trim out that area of the meniscus. There's no blood supply. It doesn't, uh, won't heal if you, even if you try to fix it. Um, it doesn't grow back. So you try not to remove too much meniscus if you can help it. So certain tears are, are just a, a trimming, which we call a meniscectomy. And, uh, and then you get into other tears, which, uh, which we try and repair, because if you remove the meniscus, it, it involves removing the vast majority, if not all of the meniscus, if you do it. So we do try to do some repairs. And um, certain ones are a certain tear pattern, which is a simple tear, that when you bear weight on it, you actually do not stress the repair as much. Um, those are typically vertical tears that are in the periphery of the meniscus. And then other types of tears can be what we call a complete radial tear. If you cut the meniscus in half, I see those and I'll see root tears and root tears are, you know, you think of your meniscus as a, as a horseshoe, it's the tips of the horseshoe that are, that actually attach onto the bone. And that's what stabilizes the meniscus, uh, much like the root of a tree. And so with those type of tears, if you don't fix it, it's like they don't have a meniscus. And, um, and the second you put weight on, a, on that meniscus after you repair it, you're, you're stressing it. You're just trying to make it rip off again. So um, that's probably the most extreme repair I'll do. And I keep people off of that completely for six weeks. So um, not every meniscus tear is the same. And not every repair is the same is the, uh, the short version of why are some much quicker and much, some much longer. Yeah. I, I think that's really helpful for people to understand and just to know that if your doctor gives you a set of restrictions, there's a, there's a reason. And just cause your friend had the same surgery and they did it differently. If your doctor is telling you something to be cautious of, like they're not, they're not just making it up. It's often something that, that they did in surgery that might've been different from your friend that had the same, same injury. So don't, 
So listen to your doctor. Don't listen to the internet or your buddy that had the same thing six months ago. Right. And the other part, too, is you got to make sure you have that open communication between your therapist and the surgeon. Because simply saying, oh, I had a meniscus repair, you don't know what type of repair it is. So, you know, you get a good therapist who has access to the, the operative note and they'll actually read it and see what was done. And they'll also have open communication with between the surgeon and the therapist, leaving you, the patient, out of the middle so that there's a clear communication of, you know, what should be done, what should not be done, what's the time frame for, uh, for healing. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, so important. Um kind of one of the foundational things that that we believe in and that like my wife and I being with with the Packers and at Marquette were so used to and and try to establish here too is just that um, you know ability to understand what was being done and make sure that it is a team environment between the surgeon or their PA and us and their athletic trainer at school and that everyone is is doing the same things and making sure that the athletes are progressing appropriately not not too slowly but also not uh, doing something that's unsafe um with bracing after acl injury and i guess people kind of talk about braces in two ways there's like the initial post-operative brace and and how long um, an athlete might want to wear that and then i'd also be curious to get your take on bracing at like the time of return to play and and if they should wear a brace and for how long after they get back on the field Sure. So if I do an isolated ACL reconstruction, I typically do not have my young athletes wear a brace. You get somebody old like me, um, I typically will just because it's, it's hard to get around. But young athletes are so good, they're so nimble moving around that a, a brace after ACL reconstruction is not going to prevent an ACL from tearing. Um, and so I typically don't. The reason why I don't, uh, two reasons. Number one, uh, you know, you get that knee immobilizer or a more expensive range of motion brace, patients tend to get more stiff because they, they tend to keep it just locked in extension, so they don't get their motion going. And then secondly, um, and this is the nuances of medicine, but um, some insurance companies only allow one brace per calendar year. And so if you get that cheaper, you know, knee immobilizer after surgery, which you didn't need, and now you want to use a ligament brace at eight months post-op, to get back into sport, well, now your insurance company won't cover the more expensive brace and you got to pay for that one out of pocket. So I tend not to use braces on patients um, after ACL reconstruction, but if I do a meniscus repair, I, I will to control their range of motion and give them some stability. Um, and then if that's the case, the brace is not there as a recommendation, it's there as a requirement. Um, and then, yeah, the nuances of... Uh, of using a ligament brace. So that's a special brace uh, that athletes will wear just for an ACL. Um, you know, you, you probably remember Tom Brady wearing his underneath his pads. You can see it sticking out. So um, with those, what I tell patients is that it's up to you if you want to wear it or not. Um, there's been plenty of uh, clinical research that has shown that athletes uh, who wear that brace are not less likely to tear their ACL. So the braces will not prevent an ACL tear. They've been proven to show that they can help prevent MCL sprains, but not ACL tears. And, and if they did prevent it, I think we would see every girl soccer player wearing wear one it. on each knee. <laughs> yes. Because uh, they have a five times higher risk of tearing it compared to other athletes. So there's been, there's been no evidence. But what we have seen is that um, one of the risk factors for an athlete tearing their ACL after reconstruction is they don't have confidence in their knee. They don't trust it. And I think for some athletes, knowing that they have a brace on there gives them that reassurance and uh, 
thereby maybe makes them less likely to tear in their graft again. So I, I give patients the option. Uh, obviously, if you're a wrestler or you play basketball with dribbling between your legs, it might get in the way and you don't like to wear it. Uh, you know, as opposed to football, where you have so many pads on as it is and linemen wear braces as it is, that uh, it doesn't get in the way as much. So sometimes for the sport, athletes tend to wear it more than others. Yeah, that's kind of what we see. And we try to, I think we take a similar approach. We sort of leave it, we always are like, we leave it between the, the surgeon and the and the player at the end of just, from our perspective, kind of to the confidence thing, we almost set a goal of like, I want you to be begging not to wear the brace because you feel so good about your knee that like you're just ready to go without it. Um, but that being said, if you need the, if you feel like you want or need a security blanket, um, we'll have some athletes that'll maybe choose to wear it in the first few practices as they get back out there and they tend to... <laughs> they're not the most comfortable things in the world. So it's like they'll start with it. And then within the first couple of months, it sort of starts disappearing and, and going away a little bit over time as well. Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, it's just good to get your perspective. Cause we, you know, you, you know about that stuff uh, probably much more, much more than we do. This is a, a probably the, mo- the question I'm most excited to ask about because this is one of my least favorite questions to answer. Uh-oh. But it's every high schooler's favorite question, especially if it was their right leg that had surgery. When can you drive uh-huh. <laughs> after, a, after a knee surgery? So for, what I tell my patients is, first of all, there's nothing that I can say that's going to hold up in a court of law. So <laughs> you can't say, well, the doc said I could drive, so this accident's not my fault. And uh, if you're wearing a brace, no matter what, even if you have full use of that limb, whether it's your arm or your leg, um, I'm sure the other driver's lawyer is going to love it that you had that on. So um, a couple of things. Number one, if you are non-weight bearing, so if you, you still can't bear full weight on that right leg, you probably shouldn't drive. Um, and that's true across the entire orthopedic spectrum. And second of all, if, if you had some limited weight bearing for a short period of time, whether it's just a week or if you had to stay off it for six weeks, and now you are full weight bearing, I think it's a good option to have um, someone else or your parent take you to you know, a large abandoned parking lot, switch spots. And the way you know if you're ready to drive or not is if you are able to get over to the brake in time, which is called your brake reaction time. So if you have no hesitation with braking suddenly, and you're probably good to start driving again. Yeah, that's what we we say. Like, I keep it really obvious. I'm like, first off, are you also have your pain meds? That's true <laughs> you know? too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, after that, I'm like, sort of common sense. Like, can you move quickly? And could you press that brake all the way to the floor if you had to? Right. And I don't know when I can tell you that. Yeah. Like, anecdotally, I'm like, well, if we're starting to do some leg presses, like you're probably getting close. But if you can't even do that, like you're probably not there yet. Right. And I don't know who's more excited sometimes that, you know, a 17-year-old can drive. It's If it's the patient or it's their parent who has their independence <laughs> back again. But um, And then I like how we don't really talk about the left leg much because I, I guess uh, the clutch is the, what, the, the millennial anti-theft device? <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was the first car I learned how to drive was a stick shift. So... Yeah, we don't really talk about it much anymore. No, they're going away. I, uh, I, I just think it's a lost art that makes me a little bit sad. Yeah. I'm the same way as you. I just think certain cars should should be driven as a stick shift. Agreed. So, okay, um, this is another interesting one, and, and this is back to MRIs, but in a little different way. This is something that we've gotten a lot really in the last six months, both with ACLs and then with kids that are coming back from Tommy John, and then also another athlete that had a, a shoulder instability. We're getting a lot of people that want to get follow-up MRIs 
after having an ACL reconstruction or Tommy John or their shoulder stabilized to like show them, quote unquote, that the graft is strong or that the repair of the shoulder has held. Um, I'd be curious to get your take on that and, and thoughts surrounding that. Sure. So you should be able to tell if, if surgery worked clinically. So there are examinations you can do for an ACL to see if your graft's intact or not. Um, I don't know how an MRI would, would change your mind if you know for sure that it's intact. Also, again, the same question. If the MRI had any doubt about the integrity of the reconstruction or the repair, whether it's the knee or the shoulder, would you want to have surgery again? And if, if that answer is no, then why are you getting an MRI? And you should be able to go through your therapy and feel confident, as you mentioned before, that, that, things, that things are sound. Um, you know, the ACL, uh, probably the most common you know, thing we talk about here, um, we don't go back to sport until eight or nine months at the earliest. There's a, as Michael knows, there's a bank of testing that, that'll be done to compare side to side to see. What we do know is that we gave you a tendon as a new graft, as a new ACL, and that 10 years from now, if you go back in your knee, which you would never do, and biopsy that tissue, um, it won't be a tendon anymore. It'll almost entirely be a ligament. You can tell by the orientation of the collagen. So there are studies that show that that process takes place in the knee soon after surgery. Most of it is done in the first year. Uh, but the highest rate of turnover of the tissue is five months. So can you see that on an MRI? Yes, you can see the change in the, the color of the, of the ACL, even though it's black and white, there's shades of gray. Um, so that's why you don't you try not to ever go back to you know, sport four months after ACL reconstruction, unless your name is Adrian Peterson, but we won't go down that <laughs> path. So eight or nine months, and you have to have it strong enough. Um, there's not much an MRI would, would really tell you at that point because the graph continues to change and mature up to two years, meaning it would change in appearance on an MRI even up to two years, and there are studies that show that. Does that mean you want to wait two years to get back to sport? Um, so again, I don't think an MRI would really change much with regards to that. Yeah, it's kind of what we said. And, um, yeah, I, I don't totally understand where it's coming from. Like we've got an athlete, a college pitcher right now that he's almost all the way through his throwing program and doing great following his elbow surgery and, and, but is like wanting this, you know, reassurance and like, the fact that you're throwing and it's going great is <laughs> that should be your reassurance. Like the only time that we'd ever recommend it or send you back is if it was going poorly, like we're not making progress. We're having a lot of pain or swelling or issues. Like I, then I might want to go see what's going on. But if you're doing awesome, like just be happy that it's going so well and, and trust it. Right. I think maybe just put them in the scanner and make some sounds and not really run the machine and tell them it looks good. <laughs> yes. That, uh, that'll be a, get your own, uh, own little specialty MRI spot, uh, opened up. <laughs> the placebo <laughs> MRI. Yes, exactly. Very cheap. Yeah. That'd, uh, that'd be great. Okay. Last one. Um, biologics as a general kind of field of medicine is um, becoming more and more popular. And, um, for probably the last five or 10 years, people keep saying it's the future of medicine and future medicine, but, um, I don't know that it's yet that clear exactly what it does. It'd be interesting um, if you use PRP or stem cell injections, what those are, when you might or might not recommend them, or any guidance that you might have for patients around that. 
Sure. So this is this is a very, what the word for it is touchy subject. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so let me just first, I'll start with PRP. So that stands for platelet-rich plasma. So what that involves is um, we take some of your blood, um, we put it in a centrifuge, which is that machine that spins around really quickly. The heavier material, your red blood cells will go to the outer portion of the, of the tube. Uh, that is a blood transfusion. Um, the other portion will, will go to the center, and that'll be the, the more liquid portion. And that'll actually won't be red. That'll be kind of a almost like a brownish, tannish, reddish hue to it. And that's your plasma. And so in that are um, a lot of different factors. There's no red blood cells, but there, there, are, there are factors in there. Some are for clotting, some are for inflammation. But basically the theory behind using that, um, I'll recommend it for some athletes who are struggling with tendinopathy. So that's basically a chronic condition, not an acute tear, but a chronic condition of a tendon, say it's jumper's knee, and they're failing to progress with extensive therapy. What does that involve? Typically at least three months of therapy, taking anti-inflammatories, trying to rehab it. And when it's still interfering with their sport, one option is to do a PRP injection. And again, when you have that degree of tendinopathy, it will show up on an MRI. You'll see partial tearing, you'll see inflammation. Worst case, I had a college athlete who um, his, uh, I think his, I think his record was like 600 pounds for a squat and uh, no injury, no acute injury, just months and months of, of pain in his patellar tendon and got an MRI and almost looked like, I mean, his patellar tendon had just started to slowly tear in half and his, his quad had started to atrophy. And that was probably the worst case of patellar tendinopathy that I've seen. And so you can clearly see something wrong on an MRI. Trying to repair it is not the right answer at that stage. It's not, not an easy recovery or an easy surgery either. And so we, we tried to shut them down and that still didn't work. And so then we did a PRP injection. And the theory behind it is you're trying to, to stimulate some healing response by injecting inflammatory factors and healing factors um, into the tendon. Now, the factors I'm talking about are scientific. Uh, there are plenty of studies that actually list out those, those growth factors, those healing factors, those inflammatory factors. And there are probably many more we don't know about that are in there, but they actually do exist. Some of those are clotting factors, and there's a cascade of 12 clotting factors. We know about these things. So there's, there's plenty of research behind it and, and scientific evidence for it. Mm -hmm. um, I know from, I don't do those myself. My partner, Dr. England, uh, does those and um, can do them in, in the office. And um, as far as medicine goes, you know, relatively cheap. Um, I think around $500, for instance. So it's a lot of money, but in the big scheme of things, yeah. um, not as much. Getting to stem cell injections then, <laughs> all right? <laughs> yeah. I'll try and tone down how I approach this, but... Um, First of all, you know, PRP is not uh, covered by insurance, um, but $500 is a little different, but there is science behind it. Yeah. Um, like I said, these factors that I mentioned, they exist, and, they, and your whole purpose is you're trying to stimulate healing so the body can heal that tissue. And in this other athlete, it did, and you got a repeat MRI, and it showed an intact tendon that looked actually normal. Right. Um, so with stem cells, some people believe that you're going to, for instance, I have knee arthritis. I'm going to inject your knee with stem cells. Um, and some people believe you're going to grow new cartilage. Okay. Um, first of all, there is absolutely zero evidence that that exists. Um, 
I'll do procedures for cartilage restoration. I'll give you new cartilage, uh, whether it's Macy, whether it's osteochondral allograft. I'll do something, and we can get a repeat MRI, which shows that you have new cartilage. And I'll, I'll scope some people. Um, whether I'm going back for some other reason, I'll rescope their knee and say, hey, do you want to take a look at your graft now that you're going in for surgery to take a plate out? Do you want me just to scope your knee quick and look at your graft? And almost all my patients go, yeah, I think that's cool. Take a look. And we'll scope it. You can clearly see with your own eyes that they have new cartilage. It's there. You can't tell where the, the, the problem was anymore. There's nothing that exists with stem cells. And it's pretty easy. You could just get an MRI and, and see, do you have new cartilage? Or you could scope that joint. Do you have new cartilage? And if it's so great, how come there's not one study that shows that? Um, so I have a problem with that. And um, I think some, some, some physicians are leading their patients down that path. And that's where you get into, uh, I think, a very gray area of, uh, is, is that the right thing to do? And there also is a, a financial fee that comes along with it. And some people quote anywhere from $3,000 to $10,000. And I think... Uh, I think that's that's really tough to to lead someone down a path of this is going to grow you new cartilage and uh, and it's ten thousand dollars and you have to pay for that out of pocket and there's no evidence to show that. So with stem cells, there there's just no way that your joint is going to know that with those cells in there you're supposed to grow new cartilage or or grow a new ACL. And there's also no evidence to show that that, that ever happens, even though the evidence to do that is very easy to do. Um, but of course, there um, is it a possibility that that could stimulate inflammation and a healing response? I, I think that could as well. Um, it's not going to grow anything new, but if you if you can stimulate that same type of inflammatory response uh, to then have the body uh, try then after that to calm back down, I, I think that's a reasonable approach or or a reasonable explanation to to why it's done. Um, so. Um, I just, like I said, I have a problem if you're telling people that, that new cartilage is, is going to grow in that area because um, I have a hard time proving that's ever going to happen. Yeah. I think you tiptoed around that <laughs> very well. Um, I think, thanks, because I thought yeah. I stomped on it a little too hard. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I agree. Like Everything you said about PRP, I think, is exactly when we advise people. It's like, hey, if, if 500 bucks is something that you're cool with, the, the worst thing that's going to do is like maybe not help and there's a good there's a good uh there's solid science behind it there's maybe not quite as solid like actual full outcomes in real life but um it for sure isn't going to hold you back and if we're at a stage of like hey it's 500 bucks and why not like awesome let's let's do it and uh and then we'll rehab around it and it doesn't really slow us down the stem cell stuff, I just think the marketing is outpacing from, and I'm not an expert in it, but from everything that I've seen, the marketing of it is not is outpacing the science, and it is because there's so many pro athletes that used to fly to Germany and used to fly it, and whenever people ask me about that, I'm like, we had no idea what they actually did. What was in the thing that they injected them with, it, it wasn't regulated, there's no scientific evidence, and yes, they came back, but like, they're also genetic freaks that are the, you know, the peak of the, the peak. And, um, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, maybe one day it will be everything that people says that it is. It, I just don't know that we're there yet. Yeah. I mean, you, you question whether or not you're injecting something that causes inflammation and then the athlete has to rest for a period of time where they've not rested that, that joint for a while. 
And maybe that's why it's getting better. Right. Um, and, you know, some people are desperate, but they've tried everything. And I think, I think most commonly we're talking about, you know, joint replacements for some people, stem mm-hmm. cells. And when you have somebody who's, I think we've, we've seen people in their, you know, 30s or 40s who probably need one. Yep. And they're still rather too young for it. And you've tried everything, PRP and time and, and steroid and viscal supplements. And then that's your only option left. I, I think that's a, that's a yep. reasonable approach to it. But when you're telling somebody who's in their 50s or 60s and they need a joint replacement that you should have stem cells because it's going to grow you new cartilage, I don't think that's the right answer. Um, And then, of course, as Michael, you know, too, there's also what's called the placebo effect. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Without going too long into it, let me tell you the the best case of a placebo effect. So it it was very common to scope people's knees who had early arthritis. You probably should have a joint replacement, but you've really not done any treatment for your your joint, we'll call it you know, your knee, ever. Um, you have loss of cartilage, your meniscus, menisci are both torn, which they have to be if they're arthritic. Um, and a lot of docs used to just scope those willy-nilly, saying, I'll clean up your cartilage and trim up your menisci. And the answer was, do you really get better, yes or no? So to answer that, they conducted a study at a VA, I believe it was in Texas, and on the veterans, because uh, they wait a long time to have their joints done, and um, and they're willing to undergo a blinded study where you don't know what's going to happen. So what they did, and this this article is published in JAMA, uh, the Journal of American Medicine. Medicine. Yeah, oh, I forget. I'm a surgeon. I'm sorry, but JAMA is a very well known yeah. article. So is that a VA? And they said you have arthritis in your knee. We're gonna um, you're gonna be part of this trial. And they said sure, I'll do it. And uh, you're either gonna be randomized to three groups. You're either gonna have your knee scoped, so you make two small incisions, put a scope in there, run fluid through the knee, clean up the cartilage with a shaver, clean up your menisci with a shaver, and get out. Group two, we're gonna scope your knee, we're gonna make incisions, we're gonna put the scope in, we're gonna run fluid, but we're never gonna put a shaver in there. We're just gonna run the fluid through your knee to kind of wash it out. Group three had two small incisions and the scope was never put in their knee. Yeah, and then they just waited, and then they closed it up. So that way patients didn't know which group they were in. They all had incisions. And what that article, which is level one evidence, which is this study is very hard to do. That's the highest level. Uh, that means everyone had follow-up. That means they had enough patients to have the highest what we call power. So uh, less likely of, of just randomization or it was chance that these are the outcomes. And what they found was that there was no difference between the three groups, which means that some people who had just the small incisions made in their knee and never had anything done got better because they believed that they had something done and they felt that they got better. So that is called a placebo effect. And perhaps this is also what's what occurring with stem cell injections. Yeah. We don't know yet. Yeah. And without going too down the rabbit hole, the more invasive and or the more expensive a placebo, the more, the more likely it is to work. Exactly. Um, and so when you have the $500 injection or the $10,000 injection, um, the chance of a placebo effect in the $10,000 injection can be, can be potentially higher. So stay tuned. But, um, you know, I think that's a really good overview on, on that field. And, and we get asked about that a lot. Should I get X PRP'd or whatever? And um, hopefully this can be a, a resource if you're at home dealing with something and, uh, and wondering those same questions uh, as well. So 
I will uh, know you're busy, so I appreciate your time. Um, we'll definitely get, uh, so Doc is a doctor at Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin. They have offices in uh, Pewaukee, Brookfield, McQuanago, um, and uh, so we will get their website and his bio and contact info um, up on the show notes for this. So um, they have a, a great practice. They take really good care of people. Um, it's relatively easy to get in. They even have like a ASAP walk-in clinic that you're able to access. So um, if anything that he said resonated with you today, if you're dealing with uh, with an injury, we we work with his patients a lot, and uh, they they all love him and are are very happy. So uh, we'll get those in the in the notes so people can find you. And uh, thanks for the time today. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. Hey, Dr. Michael here. I want to say a sincere thank you for taking the time to listen to that episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. Dr. Brett, Lauren, and I are all extremely passionate about this podcast and trying to use it to help share high quality, factual information and debunk some of the common myths and misconceptions that we see around athletic performance and rehabilitation. If you have a minute, we would sincerely appreciate you taking the time to leave a rating and review on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a teammate, coach, or colleague who you think may benefit. We want as many people to be able to hear and listen to this information as possible. Lastly, if you are on social media, head over to our page at MKE Sports Podcast or at Kinetic underscore SMP to follow us so that you get all the latest information. We love to engage, so leave a comment on this podcast, tell us what you learned, or feel free to ask us a question. We sincerely appreciate all of the support, and we look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode.